Rob Paparosi joins me on episode 77. Rob is based around the New York area where he started out playing in blues bands before quickly adding the chromatic to his harp arsenal. He took lessons with Robert Bonfilio and then had Toots Thielmans giving him tips over the telephone. The versatility afforded to Rob by playing both diatonic and chromatic allowed him to enjoy a tremendous career on the session scene in New York, playing with many famous names including Dolly Parton, Randy Newman and Whitney Houston. He's fronted the original Blues Brothers band for over 20 years, released a Paul Butterfield tribute album and has his own Grammy-nominated album. This podcast is sponsored by Zydel Harmonicas. Visit the oldest harmonica factory in the world at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Hello, Rob Paparozzi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. Great to be here today. So you're uh, Rob the Honey Dripper, Paparozzi. Um, where's the word Honey Dripper come from? Obviously, there's a famous song. Is that is that something you played a lot? Yeah, it was a fa- it was a famous song back. I think Joe Liggins had a, a little hit with it back in the '50s or something. And when I joined the Blues Brothers 20 plus years ago, they said, "What's your moniker?" And I said, "I don't even know what that is." But they said, "Well, you know, Matt Guitar Murphy and." Steve the Colonel Proper and Blue Lou Marini. So you need to have a moniker. You can't just be Rob Paparuzzi. So I said, okay, well, I had this newsletter called The Honey Dripper that I would, you know, plug my gigs. And uh, I said, why don't we, I'll be the honey dripper. And they said, okay, fine. That was the only one I could come up with. And it kind of stuck. It's a lot to say. I mean, I remember Steve Proper <laughs> on stage with, you know, Rob, The Honey Dripper, Paparuzzi. It's like, wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> So you are joining us from, I think you're living in New York now and you're originally from New Jersey, yeah? Well, I'm, I'm still in Jersey. I'm only across the river. So I'm about like a 40 minute car ride and a half hour train ride into New York City. But I've always been on the Jersey side. And uh, we recently moved, still in Jersey, but close to both of my kids who are equidistant from where I live. And so, and you've got uh, Italian ancestry and, and hence your name. So I think both your parents were Italian. Yeah. Yeah. They both were Italian. My mother was Italian American from New Jersey and the States here. And my dad came over as an Italian prisoner of war during World War II and met my mom somehow in his, in his prison travels. And they got married back. They went back to Italy after the war ended. And then they came back and started a life here in the States. So you're a, mainly a, a harmonica player and a singer, yeah? And I think it's probably fair to say that you've made most of your career as a, a session musician. Is that right? Yeah, it, it turned out that way. It started more with me playing in bands, you know, at age 15 and figuring out that I was going to do something. And then I sort of was, yes, designated as the, the lead singer and the harmonica player because that's kind of what I was doing best at the time. So I was doing that. And then years later, yeah, found out about the session work in New York City and all that. Yeah. 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 So so we'll get into that. Before then, you know, talk, talking how you started out playing harmonica, I think uh, you started about uh, age 15. Was that it? About age 14 or 15. Yes. And uh, and then you were playing diatonic to begin with. 
diatonic to begin with. Didn't even really look at a chromatic for another five years, you know, when I saw one in the store and said, oh, geez, that's a lot more money. I wonder if I should buy one of those. And at, at around age 20 is when I said, let me buy one of these things. I mean, you're definitely one of those rare breeds, which is, you know, I think equally accomplished on the diatonic and chromatic. Would you say that yourself? It ended up that I was, I fell in love with both eventually, and I saw not a whole lot of difference. I mean, there was obviously difference, you know, with the button and and the positions of everything. But I said, as a harmonica, it's really the same instrument. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep that, that philosophy. And by doing that, it made it a lot easier to transition to the chromatic. Yeah, and I know you had, you know, you had a good scene there with the chromatic players, didn't you? You had Cheber Huang and, and Robert Bonfilio. You had some lessons from both those guys, didn't you? Yes, I did. And it was wonderful because Chamber was in Long Island working at Honer at the time. So he was in the New York area and uh, Bonfilio was in the New York area at the time. And Chamber introduced, you know, I, I took his workshop in New York City at the Turtle Bay Music School. And he said, you know, if you're serious about this, you should check out my number one student, Robert Bonfilio. He, you know, he teaches. I don't have time to teach every day. I just do these seminars. Sure enough, yeah, I looked up Bonfilio and uh, he said, yeah, come on, if you're serious, uh, let's do it. Yeah, and two, two great teachers. And you also had some, at least some conversations with Toots Tealmans when he was in New York as well, yeah? Yeah, after I, you know, I mean, I was learning how to read with Chamber and Robert Bonfilio. I realized that, you know, this is all great, but I'm I'm not really a classical musician because I kind of learned blues by the seat of my pants and, and I didn't really know how to read music that great growing up. I'm just learning it now at age 20, you know. Eventually, maybe a year or two after that, I had to join the union couple of years after that. And I had to join the union in New York City. And they gave you this book, which was a, you know, a union directory. And and I just flipped it through and I went to the harmonica section and Robert Bonfilia was in there and whoever else was in there. And I saw Toots Steelman and it had his phone number. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, I wonder if I could call him. A pretty nervy thing, but you know, it's it's in the union directory. So I'm a fellow union member. So I dialed the number he was living in Yonkers, New York, a little suburb of Manhattan at the time, because he was still doing a lot of work in Manhattan and going back and forth to Europe. I called and we started chatting and he said, you know, I don't teach, you know, I'm too busy. You know, he had that Belgian accent. He goes, I'm too busy to teach. He goes, but if you want to be phone buddies, let's do that. You know, and I said, wow, he's he's offering to teach me on the telephone, you know, and that's what we did. Great. So what sort of things did you learn from Toots then? Well, I picked his brain a lot, mostly because it was hard, you know, on the telephone, but I would ask him questions about his tone and his playing and and how he did things in the studio. And then also what he would practice. And and he gave me information. Like he said, Paparozzi, the first thing you got to do is stop listening to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? You're Toots Thielman. You're like the harmonica Jedi, as far as I'm concerned. He said, no. He goes, well, where do you think I learned how to play all this jazz stuff from? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, you st- you need to start listening to the masters, Sonny Rollins and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. And, you know, the light bulb went off. He's telling me, stop trying to copy me because I got it from these guys, you know. 
Yeah, amazing. So how long did these conversations go on with Toots? You know, depending on his schedule, sometimes we would he, we could have a nice long um, hour plus conversation. Other times, you know, if he was busy, you know, we, he would cut me off or whatever. Yeah. But and then we stayed in touch and he would send me postcards from around the world. I, he had had a stroke once and I I checked on him to see how he was doing. So we were kind of, we were a little bit more than phone buddies and maybe correspondence buddies. And I would also try and go out and see him live anytime he was playing in my little neighborhood area, New York and New Jersey. So he kind of knew who I was. And then I reconnected with him. Fast forward, we had a harmonica summit here by a by the late Chris McCulloch, a great harmonica player and crazy guy that, that left us too soon. And he decided to have a harmonica summit so I reconnected with Toots physically when they had the summit. Maybe it was around the turn of the century. They were bringing Toots Steelman out to Minneapolis because he had some jazz gigs out there. And they were going to team him up at this harmonica summit with Howard Levy. So I ran into Toots Steelman at the airport and I started chatting with him there about him jamming with Howard Levy. And he was a little confused about what he was supposed to do. And he, you know, I heard of this guy, Howard Levy. And, you know, and I said, well, you're going to play with him. So, you know, that's the deal. And uh, we talked about overblows because I said, Toots, you know, you were doing overblows before Howard Levy. And he's going, he goes, maybe he goes, but I didn't know that's what they were called, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And we had these conversations. So that was my connection with Toots. And I continued to go to hear him live right up until he stopped playing out a lot. He was an amazing guy, right? Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you're very lucky to have that connection with him and lots of jealous listeners. So yeah. <laughs> so when you were learning from him, were you trying to learn jazz from him specifically or was it more just general chromatic technique? And Yeah. I mean, I kind of knew that I wasn't a jazz player you know, I mean, I just wanted to play harmonica. I, I kind of committed to all kinds of music years before yeah. that. I, you know, after my blues bands broke up and, you know, I realized that I really didn't know how to communicate with other musicians. That's why I wanted to learn how to read music. And uh, jazz was a cool thing. I just didn't know how deep I would be able to get into it. Yeah. So I didn't really study with Toots to become a great jazz harmonica player. I just wanted to pick his brain as just a great harmonica player and maybe bring back some of that stuff to my harmonica world. As I did the same thing with studying Larry Adler off of his record, I went to see Larry live once and, and also the, the great Tommy Morgan, who was a session player from California. I loved all these guys, and I, I I would be happy to be just a little bit of it, every one of them, you know, if I could, you know. Well, I think that's great what you've done. As you say, you know, we're getting again to your session work shortly, but giving yourself a real all-rounder approach there, as you say, being able to play the diatonic really well, the chromatic really well. You, you know, you do play jazz songs on the chromatic, but it's probably like light jazz, is fair to say, isn't it? So. Yeah. But, you know, it's a, it's a great approach you have, and it gives you that all-roundness, doesn't it? Yeah, and it kind of helped me in the studios, too, because I was getting calls to do session work and all kinds of stuff. I realized that it's not so much being a specialist, you know, a bluegrass or a blues or a jazz or classical specialist. The studio thing wasn't about that at all. It was about, you know, we just need a, a harmonica player that can do 
this particular job on this particular day. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm up for that challenge. It sounds like a tough challenge, but I think that's more where I want to live in the music world. And that's what happened. Yeah. And so did you consciously decide to play chromatic with a view of doing session work or, or did you learn, did you pick up the chromatic before you even thought about that? Yeah, no, it was before that. I mean, the session work came because I lived so close to New York and eventually I realized that there's sessions, you know, and they need players of all different styles. So that came later. I picked up the chromatic because I realized even, you know, I mean, I had first listened to, to Bob Dylan and, and John Lennon with the Beatles and, and that, that was my frame of reference for, oh, there's harmonica on record, on hit records, you know, and eventually my ear said, well, geez, I don't even, I don't know if he's using a, a diatonic on that. It sounds like it could be maybe that chromatic thing. But that's when I, my fascination for the chromatic started coming about. It wasn't through jazz. Then I heard about Larry Adler and Tut Steelman a little after that. And then I said, okay, well, there's this world of chromatic out there and it could be used on pop. And it probably could be used on, anyway, it can be used on jazz and whatever, or classical. So yeah, that was my interest. Said, Let me just learn this thing. At first, it was terrifying because it was so different, as most our players realize when they first pick it up. It's like, you know, the only thing in common is that you breathe in and out, right? And then everything else is different. You know, obviously, most harmonica players play diatonic, but so uh, you know, you'd give some words of encouragement to say that, you know, you, they should tackle the chromatic as well, yeah, and give them that versatility to be able to play, you know, the different styles of music and the different approach to the chromatic, yeah. Yeah, and any way you can do it. You know, if you're starting like like me, you know, on diatonic and, and it's like so many players did, um, maybe coming from the 60s with the, you know, the rock and roll stuff and the blues stuff, you you put a lot of time in on that diatonic and you and maybe even started to learn a little bit about, well, the first, second and third position. OK, so there's this blues world out there. But if you put a little bit of time into the diatonic and transitioning over to the chromatic, you can bring some of those diatonic chops over. And if that works, at first, you're terrified about reading the note. Don't even worry about that. Just say, what can I do the same on the diatonic that I can on the chromatic? You start saying, okay, there is a little bit of a second position thing. There's a little bit of a first position. So it, but it's just wider spacing and maybe a little bit different layout. But when you go to the middle of the diatonic on hole number four, you know, you've got a C scale, right? On a C harmonica. And that's where the chromatic starts. That's what I realized. Okay, there are similarities. And even in the tuning, maybe not on holes one to four on the diatonic. But once you get up to hole four on the diatonic, that's the same as the chromatic. I tried to find those similarities so great. So as well as the chromatic and diatonic, you also play some piano as well, yeah? There's a city way down on the river Where the women all were pretty and all the men Is that something you'd learn at this early age as well? Yeah, around so around that same time, around well, I was 15, I picked up the harmonica and I would start to noodle with my brother's guitars. When they weren't when they weren't home, I'd up their guitars and try and teach myself a little bit of guitar because my two older brothers played guitar. Matter of fact, the harmonica was was my older brother's, and he just left it there on the shelf, and that's how I first discovered the harmonica. He had one laying on the shelf, and when he went out, I took his harmonica too. You know, and was that a Marine band? It was a Marine band. Yeah, he was into Dylan and peace rallies, and he would ha he had this harmonica. You know. And, 
And I said, well, you know, they always tell me not to touch their guitars, but who's going to know if I touch that harmonica? I'll just wipe, kind of wipe it off what I'm doing. And, and I started playing with that. And then about two years later, at age 17, I started working. I was going to I was going to high school and I was working at a men's clothing store and I saved up a little money. And I knew my mother played piano by ear only. We didn't even have a piano, but we went over other people's houses or a place that had a piano. She could sit down and play like 10 songs. That was it. But she sounded like a real piano player for those 10 songs. And then after that, you'd say, hey, Ma, where's Middle C? And she just would like freak out and goes, I have no idea, you know. So I said, you know what? I'm going to buy a piano. So I saved up about $700 working at this clothing store. And I said to my mother, who was a secretary, you know, I said, can you go out on your lunch hour and see if you, you know, to that music store across the street and see if they have a piano? Here's, I have 700 bucks. So she went out and found a Kawhi Upright for 700 bucks, brand new, brought it home. She wouldn't play it unless she was inspired when she really was. And I sat down there and I just, same thing with the harmonica. I taught myself just noodling out notes and little broken chords. And that's how I learned piano. Never took piano lessons, never took guitar lessons. Later on, I found a guitar teacher and I started to get a little serious on the guitar. But I felt that knowing a chordal instrument, I could maybe bring some of that back to my harmonica playing. And sure enough, it really did help. You mentioned that you, you know, you're playing in blues bands when you were younger. That's the first thing you did on, on the diatonic. So you had a period of that, I think one from like 1967, you were playing in local blues bands, yeah? Playing in what, the Psychotic Blues Band, I think uh, I read? Yeah, I mean, that was sort of my first official band. I had a couple of junior high school bands. And then the Psychotic Blues Band was the band that one of my brothers, my older brother who was playing guitar, he realized that I could sing and and start playing harmonica and stuff. So they, their singer was having some problems at the time. I was kind of doing lights for them. <laughs> I was, I was kind of running their little light show, you know, they were the psychotic bluesmen. They did blues and R and B. And uh, so they were a little bit older than me and they offered me the job as a singer and harmonica player. So the psychotic blues band became uh, 1967, my first band. They had horns and we were doing blues basically. Did you support Bruce Springsteen with this band? We came to hear this band, and and also we we did some shows opening up for his band. He was a little bit further down the shore area. I was a little bit up north, but somehow through mutual friends, our our paths crossed. He would come up to where I lived in Linden, New Jersey, and and he would come and hear my band and sit in with my band, and then I'd go down there and we'd do some shows in Asbury Park opening for him. But he wasn't famous at the time. He was just a local guy that everybody kind of liked, you know, down there. Yeah. So that was the connection with Springsteen. Did you carry on um, playing with him as he did get more famous or? Well, you know, it's funny. I kind of dropped the ball on that. When he came up to hear me one day, I was doing some stuff with my guitar and a little harmonica rack. And he said, man, he goes, Rob, he goes, I love what you're doing with that harmonica on the rack thing. He goes, you know, and I love what you're doing on the harmonica. You should come down to this place called the Student Prince. And I'm doing like a blues kind of jam every Tuesday night. You know, you should just come on down. And, you know, it was a little far at the time. You know, I'm saying to myself, I should, you know, but I never went. And then two years later, 
later, I saw him on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and I, <laughs> I said, eh, maybe I should have went to that jam. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. But you played with plenty of other great people as well, so, um, you know, <laughs> you've done okay. It all worked out. Great. So, so yeah, so you you were in sort of playing with blues bands for a few years when, when you were, what, was this kind of early 20s? And then wh- wh- when did you get into the session work, and, and how did that all start? Well, yeah, so so blues bands th- throughout the rest of my, end of my, you know, 11th, 12th grade high school, and then I went into college. Um, and, and in college, I kept playing in the blues bands and then that started falling apart. You know, the bands, everybody's kind of going in their different directions. So around maybe 1974, 75, I get out of college and I realize I'm still enjoying playing my harmonica and the music thing. Maybe I should start playing other kinds of music. So that's when I started branching out, taking the lessons a little more, studying with Bonfilio learning how to read. And then what I did is first branched out from the music, went from the blues bands to a wedding band. <laughs> There's a switch, right? Because what was happening in my area, I'm in the tri-state area and it was very heavily populated. And, you know, you had all kinds of music going on, your four seasons and the, the radio. And, and, and you also had a lot of live dates, you know, and the, you had a pop music that was very heavy in New Jersey. Chicago blues wasn't that heavy in New Jersey. And uh, so I realized if I wanted to get some paying gigs, I better get out there. So people like that were hiring wedding bands at the time. A lot of the guys were getting old. They were becoming old timers like I am now. right? So they said, you know, we want some young people to be playing at our wedding, you know, so then I realized, well, I had to learn more than blues if I'm going to play. And then my brother, who was playing guitar, he kind of was sort of my leader, right? He said, well, if we're going to start a wedding band, that's cool. But you can't play harmonica in a wedding band. Nobody wants to hear that. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, you know, you play a little piano, right? Let's get you an electric piano. I, he bought me a uh, Fender Rhodes piano, and I became the piano player <laughs> in this wedding band that I had no no knowledge of, of this beforehand. And then eventually I'd sneak my harmonica in and play a song at the wedding that we were playing at. And I said to my brother, I said, you know, I really don't feel comfortable on this piano. Harmonica is what I love. And he's going, yeah, I know, but you know, you got to get the job done. I said, but I don't want to play piano anymore. So we hired a, a real piano player. And then I went out in front of the band and I sang and I played my harmonica. And that's where I wanted to be, right? So now I had to learn like wedding band, like popular music and sing it. And also, but now I have my harmonicas next to me. I didn't have to be buried behind this piano. And now the phone is starting to ring a little bit more with people wanting me to come and maybe do it. The freelance thing started. You didn't have to have a set band anymore, right? Things were yeah. changing. It was, The 80s were coming in. So I started getting calls as a singing harmonica player. There was a band, some young, great jazz and rock players that were studying at William Patterson College in New Jersey. There was a band called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They, they had hits you know spinning wheel big band david clayton thomas was the singer and they were kind of living in the new york area at the time he would go and recruit these young players because he wanted to keep the blood sweat and tears thing going but he needed people that could play rock and jazz he would go get some great players from the local colleges well these these guys knew me and they said hey rob you know we've been out playing with blood sweat and tears and we would like to just play some blues you know when we get back home during the week and 
why don't you come and join us? And I said, okay. And they said, we're going to be playing at a jam session in New York. We'll, we'll be the house band and then people will come up and jam with us. So this is now we're up to around 1980, 85. I was already just starting to get some calls for session work. So I was really coming into the, the chromatic and the diatonic thing and really putting time in on the harmonic and getting serious with it now for all styles of music. I even got a call to play in a Broadway show called Big River. The music was written by Roger Miller. Now, this was around 1981-82. Now, I had just bought a house. I was married. I got married around 1974. I was still in college. and But we decided to have a kid around 1982. And uh, my wife was pregnant. And and I, I got called to play in this show, Big River. And I think I was still studying with Robert Bonfilio. And I said, well, what does it entail? And they said, well, you'd have to come in and and I said, well, I just started this job, like this day job, you know, because I, I got a mortgage to pay, you know, because yeah. the music thing was great, but it, it still was seat of your pants kind of thing. And you didn't have a steady income. So they said, well, you have to be here every day, nine to five until the show opens. And then, you know, the performances are mostly in the evening. I said, well, I'll have to turn that down. And they said, what do you mean? Turn it down. You're a harmonica player. You know, it's a Broadway show. We're offering you a gig, you know? And I said, yeah, but you know, that's not really what, what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> so uh, I had turned it down, but I was starting to really get serious about the harmonica and getting some calls to work a little bit in New York, maybe get called to play on a little jingle if they needed harmonica. My name was starting to get around that I was a harmonica player that could read a little bit. I think you did go back to Big River, didn't you, later on and do some shows? Turns out the show, you know, they hired somebody else and, and then they called me again and said, look, it. the harmonica player was this guy, Don Brooks, who was a, a great country blues harmonica player. He had worked out on the road with Wellen Jennings and Judy Collins and uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. And he settled in New York and then he became the guy that they ended up using on the harmonica. And then he called me up and said, I could use a sub. <laughs> we got a hit show here. And uh, he goes, they really like you over there. And I said, is it in the evening? <laughs> And uh, he goes, don't worry about the matinees. He goes, I'll cover those. He goes, yeah. just come on over and, and do this show. And that's what I did. And I ended up doing a whole bunch of big rivers while they were still running on Broadway. Yeah, great. So we'll mix up you playing in different bands and then the session work you did. So as you say, you were getting more session work. I've got you um, playing with the Hudson River Rats through the 90s. That, that was your band through the 90s, yeah? Yeah, so around that same time that I was subbing on Big River on 85, 86, 87, they called me to do that Hudson River Rats where this was the band from Blood, Sweat and Tears that wanted me to front them. And I said, well, what are we going to call it? And they said, well, we all live you know, around the Hudson River, so let's call it the Hudson River Rats. And that became another New York scene where I would go over every Wednesday night and front this band. I had no idea that there was people out in the audience like Carol King and and Cindy Lauper and Phoebe Snow and David Clayton Thomas, they wanted to just play some blues because they were maybe doing sessions during the day. And at night, they said, wouldn't it be fun to just go out? Hey, this is a crazy, great little blues band. So they would sign up. And after we played our set, they would come up uh -huh. 
and they'd have to be called up by our host, this guy, Jeff Kent, who was kind of put it all together. But if they came up, they couldn't just come up and play any song. They had to pick a blues song because, you know, it's a blues jam. I remember one night, place got crowded. It was like, it was like a, turning into a scene. And I remember one night, Julian Lennon, came up to, he was waiting online to go to the bathroom and, and I was waiting online and he, and he comes up to me and he goes, I want to come up and play a blues. He, he goes, is Johnny B good at blues? And I said, it certainly is. And, and you're John Lennon's son. So you have to come up. And he did. He came up and did Johnny B good. And, uh, it was cool. So obviously this helped you meet a lot of the people you play with. You mentioned Cindy Lauper there. So that's one of the people you've recorded with. Uh, I did a song called Broken Glass uh, with her. I think in the early 90s, I got a phone call to come and play. Maybe she remembered me from the jam. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I went and played on one of her records uh, called Hat Full of Stars, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So I'll run through some of the illustrious names you play with, and when pick up on some, you, you played with Dolly Parton, and you, you performed with her on The Late Show. She came up from Nashville to promote a new record. So we did a bunch of TV shows with her. Uh, you played with uh, Randy Newman. Yeah, Randy Newman. Um, we did a little thing down at the Kennedy Center. I was in part of the house band. And he was supposed to just play a solo song. Now, I mean, I was a big Randy Newman fan. He had no idea I was such a fan. But anyway, he was over on stage behind his Steinway piano. And he was going to play a song from a, a famous movie. We were roasting Steve Martin, the comedian. <clears throat> that was part of the show is everybody was going to come out. Paul Simon would come out and do a song for Steve Martin. And then Randy Newman was going to do something from a movie called Parenthood where Steve Martin was in it. And so he was getting ready to play this song solo. And he and he's looking over at the band during the rehearsals. And, and he comes over to the band and he says, you know, I was going to play this song, fellas. And uh, he goes, solo. And he goes, but I'm thinking maybe I could use some of you guys. Now, we had like a fiddle player and a tuba, like a roots band because – Steve Martin was a banjo player, you know, so they wanted yeah. a, a root and a harmonica. You know. So he says, yeah, give me the fiddle and the clarinet. And then he looks down and he goes, and give me the harmonica too. <laughs> and we went up on stage and we rehearsed the tuna. We did it too with him. He was kind of funny. I mean, he's always like very sarcastic. And he said, he goes, you know, guys, this is a pretty important show here. He goes, I'm going to need at least 80% from you guys. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> We did it, and it was a lot of fun. Fantastic, yeah. And then you've also played with Whitney Houston as well. How did that one come about? So the Whitney Houston one was a little different because I didn't get a call from Whitney Houston per se. I got a call from Warren Hill from the Fugees who was producing a song on the new Whitney Houston comeback record. It was around 1997 or eight or something like that. My daughter took a message and left it on the kitchen table, said Lauren Hill or something. And, and she said, dad, are you, are you playing with Lauren Hill? And I said, I don't even know who that is. And she said, well, that's Lauren Hill. You know, she's like famous, you know? And I said, well, it says, I called them back and they said, they want me to come and play on this, on a Whitney Houston song tonight. She goes, if you're going to go play with Lauren Hill, I want to come, you know? So mm -hmm. she did it. I said, well, go do your homework. And she did. And we went and did this session. But the session was for Whitney Houston, who had already laid down 
the vocals and they wanted to add harmonica. It was an old Stevie Wonder song called I Was Made to Love Her. And they were changing it to I Was Made to Love Him. And they wanted to add chromatic harmonica. So... pretty cool session and my daughter was thrilled that she got to have some Chinese food with Lauren Hill. Fantastic, yeah. And you know, and then the list goes on and on. You played with all sorts of great people and you know, you played with a big band at Moaning, you played with James Goldway, who's a, the Irish flute player and lots of different variety we talked about all the different genres you like to do so really coming through and uh and, and all the people you play with there i was thr- yeah i was thrilled to get these calls i i really couldn't figure out why i was getting the calls because we had we had some great harmonica players in town you know in new york city you know bonfilio and william gallison and hendrick merkins was had come in from germany and 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 just some great players blues and chromatic and i was getting the calls i think because i was willing to just go in and do whatever had to be done and not specialize in one style of music. And I think that worked to my advantage that I could just go in and, and play on a movie soundtrack or play on an artist's record and, and be a team player. Here's a quick word from the podcast sponsor, Blows Me Way Productions. Hey folks, this is Charlie Musselwhite. If you're in the amplified tone like I am, the best and only place to start is a microphone from Blows Me Away Productions. Check them out at blowsmeaway.com. You know I ain't lying. So as well as all this session work, we mentioned that obviously you played with different bands and you released a couple of albums. 2009, you released the Utrescan Soul. This is a sort of area of Italy, yeah? So it's kind of a your Italian soul, <laughs> this album. And this was Grammy nominated, this album, yeah? It was. It made the first round. It didn't, you know, it didn't get all the way to the end. But yeah, around that time, I had realized that, you know, I had been playing on all these other things and I and I really needed to make a record that was a little more representative or make a record, but that was representative of, of what I wanted to do. And I wasn't really a songwriter, so I didn't have like these great original songs. I said, you know what? I'm going to make a record of 15 or whatever it was, cover songs that that I always wanted to do and arrange them my way and play harmonica and sing and do what I do. And that became Etruscan Soul. The name Etruscan Soul was kind of, yeah, from my father's roots in Italy before the Romans were the Etruscan tribe. You know, the Romans were crazy, but the Etruscans were a lot more into the arts. And as I read up on them, I said, you know what? Maybe I have more of an Etruscan soul than a Roman soul, you know? And that hence became the name of the record. you got a fantastic band with you. You've got a horn section, backing singers. So these are people you all knew from working on the scene there, was it? Yeah, I, I, I tapped into that. I, I realized that I had met some, you know, I'm in New York area. So I, I tapped into some great players and I asked them to join me. And most of them did. And I was thrilled. And one thing I really like about the album is, again, we talked about the variety of material. You do two songs. So you do Ticket to Ride, the Beatles song, yeah. which you play, you know, the harmonica of it. And I just listen and thinking, this is great. You know, why don't more people do this and kind of play a pop song, you know, on the harmonica? And it just sounds fantastic. Yeah, and... and- 
and I and I realized that you know, and right, like you said, not enough people are doing it. You know, they they'll play a blues song or they'll play a jazz song, but why not just play pop music on it? Because you can. I mean, it's not that limited. And there I was playing, you know, a Beatles song in basically second position blues thing, no overblow, nothing fancy, and there it was. It was like right there. Exactly. And that's what I was really thinking. Listen to it. It works so well. I mean, yeah, yeah. Because you're playing on a diatonic, it sounds a bit bluesy, but it just so, it just works so well, doesn't it? I'm thinking this, you know, we've got to hear more songs like this. Fantastic. You also do um, Strange Brew on there by Cream. You know, this is a bit more of a, a rock song, right? But it's, it works in a similar sort of way, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does. And I had gone to see Eric Clapton and Cream when at a local high school here back in like 68. That also was a big influence on me too. And then I realized that why not try and play some of these songs on harmonica? I'm always interested in trying to get people to use, right, as a session guy that I became, to use harmonica on more stuff. Don't just stereotype it and say, it's got to be the cowboy Ennio Morricone movie, or it's got to be the jazz touch stalemate, or it's got to be the this or that. Why not just get arrangers and composers interested? That was kind of my goal is like, let's get this harmonica out there now. It's time to make it a, a bona fide instrument. Yeah, definitely. That's a, and another one I want to pick out from there is Peg of My Heart, which is a, a famous kind of a harmonica band song. So you're playing this on diatonic, right? Not chromatic, which is it's more traditionally a chromatic song. So what, what made you choose to play it on diatonic? What made me choose to play it on diatonic was, I know you're a member of the uh, UK harmonica, right? Yep. And I was a member of SPA, which was the American version of that. I had joined it back in the 70s when most harmonica players didn't even know, young guys like me at the time didn't know what it was. But I said, this is an organization that, you know, loves harmonica. Let me become part of it. Well, when I went to become part of it, uh, the late the late Danny Wilson invited me. I realized that a lot, there was a lot of older players at the time playing chromatic and they really didn't have a lot of respect for the diatonic guys at the time. Yeah. And I would get into these little bitty arguments with guys. I had a, I had like a little correspondence thing going on with this guy, Eddie Manson, who was this great classical uh, a session guy from California, a chromatic guy. And he compared the diatonic to the penny whistle. And he goes, yeah, that's like a toy. And, and I said, wait a minute. No, it isn't a toy. You know, we'd get into these philosophical things of, and about music. And then I realized that this is a great organization, but they're into that peg of my heart thing from the 50s, that the harmonica band thing. So I said, you know what? What if I did what Charlie McCoy did? Just kind of made it into a country tune diatonic. And then I played peg of my heart. And that's when I decided to learn it, to make those guys happy you're right there was a big division there but hopefully you helped to cross that divide and bring the people together between the two instruments i think it helped I, there was later on there was guys like joe felisco that joined and and mad cat and i think that helped bridge yeah. the gap because you know otherwise the harmonica was just going to die in the world of peg of my heart you know yeah. So then after after this album, you did a an album which is a sort of tribute to Paul Butterfield called Electric Butter. I think you released in 2015. So this is with uh, the Ed Palermo big band, yeah? So obviously Paul Butterfield was a big influence on you. 
Yeah, Butterfield was a big influence when I was learning the blues stuff. I went back to the Chicago Blues Masters via Paul Butterfield because after I was listening to Bob Dylan and John Lennon and Brian Jones on the pop music, you know, the Beatles and Stones and all that. My mother owned a candy store too, by the way. And there was this guy who came into the candy store back when I was in high school and he had the first Paul Butterfield record under his arm. And he was kind of like an artsy, kind of a tough guy. But he had this Paul Butterfield. He goes, hey, I think you and your brothers would like this record. Why don't you check it out? Now, I had no idea. I'm from New Jersey, what Chicago blues was. And Paul Butterfield was second generation. He had a half white, half black blues band. And they were playing stuff from the masters, from Little Walter and Muddy Waters. And that turned me on to that music. So Paul Butterfield's music was important to me. He was sort of doing like what the Stones were doing in the UK, right? They turning the world onto, and also, you know, uh, who was the other guy in, in London too, that there was a real blues aficionado. Cyril Davis. Cyril Davis. Those were guys that were turning on everybody to blues. The Stones started recording it and then it came over here. So it's funny, you know, in New Jersey, I had to get the blues from the Stones and then from Chicago, from this second generation guy, Paul Butterfield was also playing stuff that he had heard in the clubs, but it turned the world on to blues music that they probably would have never heard before. And that's kind of like fast forward to turn of the century when I got a call to go play with the Blues Brothers. At first in the 80s, when the Blues Brothers movie came out, I figured this is like a joke. They're making fun of the blues. What are they doing? You know, comedians. And I didn't get it. But when Steve Cropper called me and he asked me to come out in front this band, but when I went out, I did it because it was Steve Cropper. He was the colonel. I had to, I had to go play with these legends, right? So exactly. So so just to explain this. So this was the original Blues Brothers band and Steve Cropper was the guitarist in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So so this was all after the movies had, had all finished. And um, you think, you know, obviously John Belushi had died and Dan Aykroyd had given it all up and everything. Yeah, at this stage. Yeah, John had died, and Dan Aykroyd still, and Judy Belushi owned the name of the band, and Dan Aykroyd sanctioned the band. because look at guys, I don't want to come out and do gigs in Europe and Asia. You know, I'm busy making movies. So he sanctioned the band. Hey, go out and do your thing. So they needed a front man. And that's how I got the call to go do this thing. But I realized when I did go out into the world, and I'm now I'm doing these concerts all over the place, there was young kids, my grandkids' age, and they, generations of people that now knew this music, which happened to be blues and R&B, that never would have ever heard this music without that movie. And so I, I got down off my high horse and said, oh, you know what? I get it. And I'm going to go out. And I played with these guys. And, and I saw the smiles on the people's faces as they all left the concerts. And this was every place from, I mean, like Ronnie Scott's all the way to Japan. I mean- yeah. People were moved by this music, and that band was their little link. Yeah, fantastic. And so that you weren't like a Blues Brothers tribute band, though. There was just you as a singer, wasn't there? Wasn't like two, you know? There wasn't like the El Elwood and Jake Blues Brothers thing. No, and I, and I and there's some really good ones out there. And and I, but I never would have personally done that. I, I didn't want to join a tribute band. But when I saw it was the original guys, or who was like, like Matt Guitar Murphy and. I said, you know what? These guys are the real deal. So let me bring what I can to it. Yeah, no, fantastic. And obviously you you were playing harmonica with these guys as well, yeah? They didn't know I was, I was a harmonica player, even. I said, yes, I can sing these songs, Steve. I know these songs. And uh, I said, you know, I play harmonica. Do you? Well, we don't really need a harmonica player at this point. You know, we just need you to sing these songs. You know? When I went to take the first gig, 
we're in Poland or something. And I went to take out my harmonica and she caught the Katie, um, which was their first big opening number. And at the rehearsal in the afternoon, Blue Lou Marini said, no. He goes, Rob, you don't play harmonica on this. And I said, what do you mean? It, Taj Mahal wrote it and Dan Aykroyd played harmonica on the movie. And, and they said, yeah, but you know, now we made it a trombone solo. And he said, you could play at the end of the song over the one chord. And I just kind of gave him a dirty look. And I, I took the harmonica and I put it in my back pocket. And I said, nah, I don't play over the one chord. <laughs> and they said, oh, well. And then the next night we were playing at, at some fancy revolving stage in Monaco, right? And I was kind of still nervous. It was my second show. So I'm warming up for the show. And the way, way I would warm up is I'd pull a harmonica out of my bag and just play, even though I wasn't playing it in the show. You know? And uh, Steve Cropper walked into the dressing room and he, and he goes, Eddie. Eddie Floyd was our special guest. He goes, come in here. He goes, listen to what Rob's playing on that harmonica. And he goes, we got to work that into the show. And then after that, I started playing harmonica and singing. Yeah, no, fantastic. No, fantastic gig to, you know, to do. How long were you playing with those guys and, and touring around? Probably from around turn of the century. So I would say around 2000 to around the present. And uh, we, have, we haven't had much since the pandemic hit, but uh, over 20 years. A great gig. Wow. Just finishing off on your uh, your music career, I think you've got a latest band, uh, Paparazzi's Duke Joint. Is this your your latest band? Yeah, I'm, I so it's kind of everything kind of morphed over the years. After I did my little records, Etruscan Soul and Electric Butter, I realized that now I have a lot of stuff that I could call from in my career. That became Paparazzi's Juke Joint, where whoever you hire me with, maybe a two piece three-piece, four-piece, up to a 10-piece band, we're going to call it Paparozzi's Juke Joint. And it's just going to be all the music that I've always wanted to play, and, and I'm going to entertain you for a night. And uh, going back a little bit to the session, where you touched on that, you know, you've, you've done movie soundtracks, you've done a, a song, uh, a movie called uh, Tom Hook, which is a Walt Disney movie. You've TV shows, you mentioned advert jingles, you know, you've been on the David Letterman show with Dolly Parton. So it's so lots of uh, TV work and, and also quite a lot of movie soundtracks as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all, all of a sudden when you become a guy that's on call, then you never know where the calls are going to come from. You know, I would get calls from, let's go play behind George Jones on the Letterman show or culture clubs coming into town they're doing a comeback and they need a harmonica player and you become this on call kind of a guy it's pretty interesting you never know what the gig's going to be about and you also uh, do some teaching of harmonica you've got this um my music Masterclass where you've got i think it's three videos which are available online by your website i'll put a link onto the podcast page for those yeah <clears throat> the teaching thing kind of just became a natural thing because that's how i had learned you know i found a couple of guys like bonfilio and Touch on the telephone. And, and I always felt like, you know what, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to try and help other harmonica players from whatever information I can use. I started getting calls from the Turtle Bay Music School where I learned and they said, you want to come and teach here? And so back in the 90s, I was teaching there. And then I turned it over to Dennis Grunling, who was in the area, who was a great player. And I said, why don't you take over? I'm not going to be teaching anymore. But then Fast forward now, right, to the 
the new century and, and even the pandemic, we've all had to reinvent ourselves, haven't we? With podcasts and teaching and Zoom lessons. And, and I started teaching online even. I mean, I always I was teaching from my house and people wanted to come over and study with me. And I would tailor make my lesson to the student because harmonica is such a diverse instrument and everybody plays different styles. Fantastic. Yeah. And as you say, you're still teaching now on, on Skype and, and things, yeah? Yeah, I'll teach online. A little less now since the pandemic ended. And I do some stuff from the house here for locals that people want to come over. And it's a great way of keeping the great players and the young players interested in this instrument. Definitely, yeah. Well, you've got definitely a wealth of experience to share. So a question asked each time, Rob, is if you had 10 minutes to practice, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing? You know, it really, I'm not a very disciplined player and I'm not proud of that. I wish I had had more discipline to, to do with, with some of the great jazz and classical players do. So I'll sit down and work on whatever I'm into at the time. If it's a piece of music, matter of fact, last week, my brother moved down to North Carolina. He plays with a keyboard player down there. They sent me a track of Bluesette, which is a famous Toot Steelman song, right? Mm -hmm. And they said, would you want to play on this? You know, I never really even played Bluesette. So that's what I was working on. So I work on whatever is on the table. And if it means practicing some scales so I can jam on a tune or whatever, that's what I do. I remember when I got a call to play with the New York Philharmonic to do a Henry Mancini's Breakfast at Tiffany's. I wanted to work on that classic chromatic sound. And I wanted to sound like the guy, George Fields, who was a session player from California back then. And I worked on that for weeks, getting my my tongue blocking chromatic plan to try and sound less like Toots and Stevie and more like this sound that we had remembered from this movie. So I just practiced whatever's on the table. So so we'll move on to the the last section now, uh, Rob, and uh, talk about gear. So first of all, your harmonica of choice is a is a big river Hona harmonica which is um probably quite an unusual choice what made you choose this as a probably on the cheaper end of the scale but i know you you um you do some modifications don't you so for diatonics when i started out obviously in the 60s they only had the marine bands and the quality control was pretty ugly back then you never knew what you were going to get and that's all you had you didn't have all these models like crossovers and golden melodies and and special 20s you only had that so i learned on a marine band As all these other super duper models came out years later, I tried them, but I found that since I learned a different way, I played on some pretty leaky harmonicas back in the 60s and 70s. I learned to push my air a little differently through the harmonicas. So what might be a good harmonica for you, since you learned on maybe a great, like a crossover that really sings for you, you know, for me, that might not work because it would clam up because I'm maybe pushing a little more air in a different way. So for me, the Big River price point was sort of like a modern day marine band that Honer was going to now make modular harmonica out of that you could change the plates on so for me at price point i'm using a load of harmonicas and that was going to work for me because it was the right price so i went with the big river for that reason and now you you're selling these custom big river signature harmonicas which are using the blue moon combs which are made by uh tom mahalchak yeah if you open up a big river you realize that the, the cover plates are nice the reed plates are really nice but the weakest link is that little molded comb it's it's a really cheesy comb and that makes the harmonica not play not so well maybe leak and whatever so i found that 
when people started coming out with combs. There was a guy, the first guy was this guy, Mark Lavoie, um, back in the early 90s, he came out with this thing called the Lavoie comb. It was a titanium. And that's when I realized that, okay, now we have the option. So fast forward to Tom Halchek and Blue Moon Combs. He was making all kinds of materials, plastic and synthetic and, and metal and whatever, aluminum and anodized aluminum. I found if you just replaced it, to take the big river and replace the comb, you've got a great instrument. Buy the cheap big rivers and then add these combs or let Tom put them together because Tom Halchek, and, and we have a lot of customizers now out there, which is great. We never had this when I was coming up. And these guys can tweak your harmonica the way you want it. You're overblow, you're a wet player, you're a dry player. You're a hard player. You're a soft player. So that became an option. Oh, great. I have a couple of the Blue Moon combs myself, which I bought a good few years ago now. But yeah, they're excellent combs. Yeah, so good stuff. And then on chromatic, you're also playing honers. I think you're playing what, the 270 mainly. Yeah, I pretty much stuck with the Honor harmonicas. I had a short love affair with Suzuki, and I went over to Suzuki because they were really getting into things at the time. I wasn't so crazy about their diatonics, but their chromatics were really nice, the serious and the fabulous. And I started adding some of those to my kit. And then um, Honor got better again, and I went back because that was the company I started with. But I always found that the Stock Honor 270, before the Toots Hard Bopper and all that, was a great instrument. You know, square holes. I mean, it was a little, it wasn't like a fancy looking thing, but it really always held up really well. Problem is, is that, you know, with a chromatic, they use these pear wood combs and eventually comb was going to crack. So that even if the reed plates were still good, you've got a cracked comb and now you're back to square one. And they weren't so modular that you could just pop off the reed plates. You kind of had to know what you were doing. I still do play the chromatics. I play the 270s. That's that's my choice. But I have a guy in San Francisco, uh, Steve Malerby, who had worked on all of Norton Buffalo's harmonicas. He had done some servicing for Stevie Wonder. And I don't like working on my harmonicas. I'm not very handy, especially the chromatic. Now, diatonics, I'll take them apart and I'll tune a couple of notes or I'll make it into a country tune. I could do that because diatonics don't have all the moving parts that a chromatic does. So I went with this guy who's a a pretty good tech, and uh, he does a good job for me. Before we leave the chromatic thing, I should also mention the chromatic deluxe model. Is it has the round holes, and that's a great, and it has a synthetic comb. So I added, started adding some of those to my kit. Talking about different tunings on on the diatonic, you mentioned you played country tuning earlier on. So do you use many different tunings? Uh, I don't use many. I, I do like the country tuning. Because you don't have to change too much of your technique. You just have that one major seventh on the fifth hole draw. But I'm open to other tunings. There's, uh, I did some workshops with Todd Parrott, who's a great player. And he has his Parrott tuning where he, he takes the whole seven and tweaks that. And then guys like Brendan Power have done amazing things with the tuning layouts. And, <clears throat> and then you have that Patty Richter tuning where you take hole number three because holes two draw and three blow are the same note on the diet. So you can kind of make that an A note instead of having to bend the, uh, you know, on a C one. Yeah. So I don't mess around with them a whole lot. I don't want to get too far away from relearning all these tunings. So I stick with just the country tunes and then I've learned how to do overblows. And the same thing with the chromatic. I don't retune anything. I'll buy different keys. And what about your embouchure? Uh, I would say 50% pucker and 50% tongue block on all my playing on diatonic and chromatic. It's a back and forth constantly for me. I'm also very big on telling players not to buy in to the theory that you get bigger tone 
with 100% tongue blocking. That's a fallacy, in my opinion, after 50 years of playing. The tone comes way further back in your throat than it does with your front of mouth armature. You can have a full, full tone as a pucker player or a tongue block player. There's a lot of factors that go into tone. So anytime we have harmonica players that say, oh, if you're not tongue blocking, you're doing it wrong. I totally disagree. You may not agree with me, but I feel I have a pretty good tone and I've made it work by using both of the armatures. And I feel you should spend time never just abandoning one to learn another. You should learn them both and keep up with them both. Yeah, I mean, and there's certain licks that sound like really good with tongue blocking and certain um, effects that you can get. And then, of course, corner switching where you're playing out of both sides of your mouth mm-hmm. is the ultimate in tongue blocking. And, you know, and, and there's that too, if you're playing bigger interval leaps and jumps and stuff like that. But there's also things on pucker that you'll never be able to get that speed as a tongue blocker because of the armature of the of the puckering. You can move faster and do licks that you can't do as a tongue blocker. And so equipment wise, what about uh, microphones and amps? What do you like to use? Yeah, mics and amps are interesting because we've also added so many options like we did with harmonicas themselves. I, I helped the Audix company develop a mic called the Fireball a couple of years back. Yeah. I really like that microphone. It's not a bullet mic. For Chicago Blues, you might want to use a, something like a, a, an Aesthetic or a Shure or a Bulletini. Jason Ritchie developed a 57, the Shure 57, into a Jason Ritchie model, mm-hmm. um, which is a really great mic. So I'm all over the map with that. I don't have one favorite. If I had a go-to mic, it would probably be the Audix Fireball with a volume control because mm-hmm. I go for a cleaner sound. If I want dirt, I'll get that from the amp or my throat. A bullet mic is great, but the problem with a bullet mic is it gives, you know, since I play a lot of different style music, not just Chicago blues, it's going to make it sound like uh, like a guitar player would sound if he stepped on a distortion pedal and left it on the whole performance. To me, that's what a bullet mic is. It's one sound and that's it. And it's great is if you're just playing classic Chicago blues, it sounds great for the whole set. So you're playing a lot through a PA then and not so much through amps. No, I mean, not not so much that. This microphone works great through PAs, but I'll use this Audix microphone through, I I like playing through a Fender amp. I'll use a Fender Blues Deluxe Mm -hmm. and I'll plug right in. You know, I have the converter plug, so it's quarter like a guitar jack. And I plug right into the, the Fender Blues Deluxe, which has 112. But I don't like modifying the amplifier for harmonica. I feel then you're starting to do what you did with the bullet mic. I want that amp to sound like a Fender amp. I don't want to start modifying the tube swapping and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to plug into it. And if you tweak it right with your knobs and your bass and treble and master volume, you can get a little dirt from that amp or plenty of dirt from it. And then also do the rest from your cupping. So I do like playing through amps, but I like having the variety of changing the colorization from tune to tune. And I can do that with an amp and with a, with a mic like that. And it doesn't feed back. And so, and so, final question, and just about your future plans. I see you've got some uh, some things lined up for twenty twenty three. You've got a uh, well Van Morrison tribute coming up in March. You have got a uh, Shanghai Jazz, and there's a Heart Fest in May. So you got you got plenty of things coming up uh, later this year. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I haven't gotten any tour calls for the Blues Brothers, and who knows what what the future brings for that. 
But I've got little projects that I do, like the Van Morrison tribute and the Bob Dylan tribute. And I teach, I'll continue teaching from home, playing local gigs at my Shanghai Jazz Club. And I'm being more selective as I'm older now. I just turned 70. So I, I don't want to just go out and play really loud uh, rock'em sock'em gigs anymore. I want to do stuff that I want to do. So it, it looks like a good mixture ahead. So thanks so much for joining me today, Rob Paparazzi. Thanks. Great being here, Neil, and good luck with the podcast. Proud to be part of it. Once again, thanks to Zydel for sponsoring the podcast. Be sure to check out their great range of harmonicas and products at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Thanks so much to Rob for joining me today. What a career he's had and well-deserved with his great playing on both diatonic and chromatic harmonicas. And thanks once again to Robert Sawyer for making a donation to the podcast. And thanks all for listening. Let's sign off now with Rob playing us out with She's Too Good For Me. That cannot be true, Rob. (laughs) 